So I have to admit, this was a little bit of a daunting one to undertake. For those of you not aware, several of the people involved in making this game also were involved in making several of the Devil May Cries, and it shows in several ways. These game, this game in particular also tends to be extremely referential. In fact, the list of references is so huge, I decided to make a point not to actually list it for you guys. You can just look it up for yourself if you're really that interested. Um, but... Well, okay, okay. <laughs> There's a couple things I want to cover before I really get into the big things. First of all, let me make this as bluntly clear as I can, and I just, I don't even want this in, in the comment section. I don't want to turn this into a big thing. Nothing about Bayonetta's presentation, the woman, the character, bothered me, okay? Now, uh, so I do have two really big negatives for this game going through it. It didn't really shine for me in the same way that Devil May Cry 3 did, for example. The first big reason was because there was the, the dialogue in many places was just kind of off. And I almost feel like it was done on purpose, but it was kind of weird. And it's even weirder because it's not always off. Some characters, the dialogue actually popped and worked very well. But everyone else, it was just awkward and like uh, disjointed. I don't know if that's down to the voice directors, I don't know if that's, the, that's down to the voice actors, I don't know if that's down to the writing. It just did not mesh well in many scenes. And there was a huge amount of extremely clunky exposition uh, that was present in this. The second thing that I didn't like about this game, and this is, you're probably going to laugh at me, was the cussing. There was a lot of uh, cussing in this game. You know, F word, S word, etc. I mention that though, it's not just because I tend to have a thing against cussing in general, but I've always felt that cussing should be utilized as a, an appropriate tool when it comes to writing. And this entire game feels like a fun romp of adventures. Yeah, let's just go and woo! You know, it's just so shamefacedly over the top. And I love that about it. It's, it's my favorite aspect of the game. I had a ball playing through it. It just felt so out of place to be like, yeah! And then just blah! <laughs> It kept every single time, I'm, I kid you not, every single time someone cussed in this game, it took me out of the scene. It, 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 it completely pulled me away from the events that were happening. And it just felt completely out of place. I have no idea why they decided to do that. I, I really don't. Um, there's other ways to get across dialect than, than throwing curse words around left and right. Also, and I just have to say this right now, Enzo was terrible. Uh, every scene he was in, well, that's not true. Every scene he was in but one made me want to go, Ugh, just get off my screen. It, by contrast, for example, Luca, he was awesome. Luca was great in every scene he showed up. He even, he, Luca was, was one of the few characters I felt they really just nailed, hit the nail on the head. Like, there's a scene where the great god of chaos, oh, by the way, there's going to be tons of spoilers in this for the first game and the second game, just, duh. Uh, the great god of chaos is, I will rule all and I will see humanity knelt before me. And Luca just swoops in like, hey, what's up? <laughs> it was so wonderfully Luca. Um, and it, he, so he actually made me laugh more than a few times. He, he was really good. Um, so, uh, <laughs> um... When I first looked at this, I kind of took a step back and was like, do I really want to tackle this one? But as I said, you know, if, if it was a request from my patrons, I would go ahead and accept such a request. And I was really hesitant to accept this one because, for those of you not aware, there's actually a decent amount of lore behind the Bayonetta series. And it's actually uh, convoluted because it involves inconsistent time travel. 
basically. Uh, that's the best way to summarize the problem with Bayonetta's overall approach to its lore, is like some of the events of the two games happened 500 years ago, some of the events happen in the present, and they the lines blur between the two quite a bit. And like I said, it's inconsistent time travel because on the one hand, there are quite a few uh, examples of time as a single line theory. In other words, you know, you never change time. It's just you're completing time. Everything, every time you go back into the past, you always did kind of a thing. And there's several examples of that, including the main plot of both games is actually a stable time loop. Which then makes it odd that at several points, especially in the first game, you actually alter history. But alter history in a way that just kind of doesn't do anything other than suddenly awakens... It's just... It's, it's very inconsistent in several points. Um, however, however, uh, I, you know, I'm looking at this and reading into the depths of it, I'm, I'm debating, you know, do I really want to tackle this? Because there's just... There's not a lot to analyze here, if I'm being completely honest with myself here. So to be completely blunt, I'm not... Uh, this is probably going to be a pretty short video because I just don't have that much to talk about. So rather than try to analyze what's on the screen, and I'll have a, I have a few things to talk about there, I'm just going to go ahead and try to talk about the game itself and then try to explain the game itself, the lore of the game, rather than trying to really dissect it like I normally do. First of all, uh, this is without question a spectacle fighter. It's actually officially listed as a spectacle fighter, which is nice. Um, I've, I've used that term myself several times. I believe that uh, Yahtzee is the first one I've ever heard that term from. Spectacle Fighter is basically your standard Devil May Cry slash God of War style gameplay. Now, God of War is actually a little bit down the scale. It's not quite a full-on Spectacle Fighter. That's more of a Zelda-ish Spectacle Fighter. Um, <clears throat> this is probably the furthest extent of Spectacle Fighter, is Bayonetta 2 specifically. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll explain in a couple ways. First of all, uh, the game goes out of its way to encourage you to rack up as high of combos as possible and to get as many style points as you can because it's trying to be just blatantly over the top about everything. Uh, there are boss fights in this game where your backdrop, you know, the background for the boss fight, is another boss fight that's going on back there. There's a scene in this game where you hop into mechs, which I'll talk about briefly later, and go and just kind of abstractly start pummeling your way through hell. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the point I'm trying to get across here is that it is utterly... It, it is an exercise in excess. And it is utterly unashamed of that fact. And that's one of the things I like about it. It completely embraces its over-the-top nature. This is the video game equivalent of uh, Gurren Lagann. For the, or Gurren Lag... Whatever. That one anime, for those of you who know what that is. Um, they do some really good stuff, too. Overall, I have basically no complaints about the gameplay. There's lots of different modes of playing. Uh, it, again, in a similar way to Devil May Cry 3. It uh, was also very difficult to play through, similar to Devil May Cry 3. Um, there was, uh, they, they reward you for, it's the same combo concept, so I don't want to repeat myself there, but, you know, the general idea that you decide your combos rather than you hit a few button inputs and you do a certain type of combo. They added this new thing called torture-style attacks, where you specifically try to, uh, attack an enemy in certain types of ways that are indicative of the way the witches were killed during the witch hunts 500 years ago, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. Um... The, there are several sections where there's like narration or cutscenes happening, which is playable. So you're actually being able to do something while you're listening to the story or while you don't care about the story. Uh, 
there's it, I, I I don't know what else to say. I, this I, this sounds so weird. I don't know what else to say. The gameplay is fun. It's just fun. Um, now, one thing I don't know is if you could crank the difficulty down and just have fun with it and just mulch your way through enemies and feel awesome. Um, I don't remember which difficulty I played on, but it wasn't the easiest. It was... Uh, I, I had some difficulties. Actually, I don't really remember much about a difficulty selector now that I'm thinking about it. Like, in most other games, it's really obvious. It's right at the beginning. God, I don't even remember. Uh, whatever. I don't know if that's an option, but if you're interested in the kind of gameplay where you you yourself have the agency, you yourself have to put out the skill in order to accomplish what you want, and you want a challenge, and you want to be rewarded with awesome for having completed that challenge, this is a pretty good game for that. The game also has no problem whatsoever being ridiculous. I don't mean like in the same way that Devil May Cry 3 was. Devil May Cry 3 had the David Tennant effect, which was silly and then serious. This game has fake serious, and then ludicrous. There's a scene where you are you literally dropkick the god of chaos into a demon's mouth. Now, that just that may sound like some big thing, but let me explain what I mean by that. When he's being knocked into the, god, the, the, the demon's mouth, he's going like this. He's just flailing ridiculously like he's in a, a, a Daffy Duck cartoon. That's what I mean by the ludicrous side of things. And I like that because it does give this game its own distinct tone separate from other spectacle fighters like, you know, the Devil May Cry series I just mentioned. Um, <clears throat> I think that's actually all I really have to say about uh, uh, gameplay other than the... Uh, they, they do a couple of really smart things. Like, for example, there's this sort of cutscene thing they do. Most of their cuts, well, I should say about half of their cutscenes are your standard cutscenes. The other half have this motif of a clock turning and it looks it looks like it's still images, but it's actually just uh, the, the the same models, the same three D models. They're just not animated, or at least they're not fully animated. It's a stylistic thing, and it's hard to explain. It, it looks like a kind of a pseudo living comic book is kind of the effect it looks like, which I suppose explains this uh, game in a nutshell. It does have a very comic-y feel to it in its over the top nature, and again, that's part of why I like it. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, let's let's talk about the setting of Bayonetta. So uh, forever ago, uh, there was one realm, and then it split into three. Uh, these three realms all are pretty much in balance with each other. There's the realm of courage, wisdom, and po oh wait, I'm sorry. No, there's the realm of darkness, realm of light, and the realm of chaos. Okay. <clears throat> Realm of Darkness is the Inferno, Hell. The realm of light is Paradiso, Heaven, and the realm of chaos is Earth. Earth. Um, <clears throat> each of these had one ruler that was placed over them. The Queen Sheba over Darkness, uh, Jubileus, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, over uh, Paradiso, and Aesir, the god of chaos, over Earth. Now, each of these uh, has their own thoughts about how things should work. We get some insight, and it's tiny little bits and pieces here and there. Surprisingly well presented, though about how certain members of each of these, uh, the, the other two realms, believe that they shouldn't be three realms, they should be one realm, with their particular philosophy dominant. Your, your standard kind of battle for uh, supremacy sort of a situation. And this is true for, for Chaos as well. Aesir himself uh, is actually the villain of the entire series, because he was also the villain in the first game. Super big spoilers there. By the way, I warned you earlier. I warned you. <clears throat> 
because the entire plot of the first game, for those of you who remember, had to do with some time-traveling shenanigans I'm not going to go into right now, which boiled down to an individual who was actually Bayonetta's father, who was the last Lumen Sage, I'll talk about that in a moment, was trying to rebuild Jubileus and resurrect Jubileus, who was, as I mentioned, the, the deity, the leader, I guess is actually a better term, of uh, <coughs> Paradiso. And in now the thing was, that wasn't actually Balder who was doing that, the last Lumen Sage. That was actually Aesir who was doing that. A in other words, the idea was that Aesir would resurrect Jubileus and then have control over multiple of the dimensions rather than just one, which was kind of the goal from the beginning. So yeah, all three of the leaders have a desire to control and dominate the others. This is especially shown rather clearly during a single cutscene where Fortitudo... Fortitudo? I don't know how to do these words. Um, Fortitude was talking to Baldir and, and talking about how these powers of chaos, the powers that were granted to the Earth Realm, should only belong to the, para, to the Paradiso. And there's just this sort of natural arrogance in the way that it's being presented. You get the impression that... <clears throat> you get the impression that they're kind of, well, lifeless. Uh, this is one of my first and only... I, I have very few theories uh, for this game. But one of my biggest theories, which I'm going to segue into uh, right now, is that the Inferno Demons and that the... Uh, I'm just going to call them angels, I know it's not the proper term. The angels and the demons aren't actually, in the strictest sense of the word, fully sentient and sapient. They cannot violate their programming, is how I would actually describe that. They are restricted to the thought processes that they are allowed to. They can still think, but they can't expand. And this is actually a common trend in many works of fiction. In fact, Diablo, over in Blizzard, uh, Blizzard's purview, uh, has the same exact idea. You know, the fact that a demon, despite having the ability to think for themselves, can never not be a demon, and same for an angel. Um, <clears throat> and there, there are several other works that do this as well, with things that aren't, you know, demonic and angelic or whatever. But in this case, uh, it's really disturbing because I have another theory, which I'm going to go ahead and segue right into here. So, we know for a fact that some angels uh, are crafted from willingly self-sacrificed human souls. Now, that may be a bit of flavor text fluff. That is possible. However, that makes me wonder, because we know, again, that all the realms used to be original, and I'm just going to go and get out and say it. I think that they're all the same being at the core. The idea being that they're, it's, every creature has the same type of soul underneath, the same fuel, if you will, the same origin point and that angels are souls that have been completely turned into you know, that thing over there with the light, demons being the ones turned into the dark, and human souls being the ones that have an undetermined mix of the two, a.k.a. chaos. And the idea that both sides uh, recruit from the, uh, from the middle makes sense to me as well. So, so, so I mentioned the angels. We also know for a fact that at least one demon, uh, one major demon, Alraune? I don't know I don't how to pronounce that. Um, is a demon that was used to be a human and kind of died in a fairly horrible way, in a fairly self-sacrificial way, because she committed suicide and became this, this uh, powerful demon, Madama, as a result of that. Madama? I don't know. Um, so, I, I, I get a little bit of a Constantine vibe here, if I'm being honest with you, which is another excellent setting 
that uses a similar type of a concept. And I kind of like the premise there. I like the idea of this pseudo-battleground, especially since it's not, in the strictest sense of the words, a battleground like most of those other settings do. You know, there's not this eternal war between the two sides going on, at least not that we've seen. There's just this sort of disagreement. You know, we should be in charge. No, we should be in charge. No, we should be in charge. No, we sh And the humans in the middle are just like... Da, 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 da. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, I will also say, though, one thing I, I have a theory about is... Be, so, one, one thing that strikes me as very strange, all of the angel things, including the extremely high-ranked uh, Aud Auditito? Audito? I have no idea how to pronounce these words. Uh, are, um, are, are all obey Balder, despite the fact that they kind of shouldn't, if you think about it. First of all, a Lumen Sage, and again, I'll talk about that in a minute, um, is not someone who is in charge of angels. They simply can make pacts with them, similar to an Umbra Witch being able to make pacts with demons. So that doesn't really make sense. Um, so it's not like they have to obey him. He has Aesir inside him, so they don't have to obey him for that reason. Now, he is working towards a goal they agree with, resurrecting Jubileus, but... Yeah? And yet, at the same time, it is shown that they should, they keep him in the same kind of disdain that they do everything else. I have a theory. I have a theory that when you first become a particular angel or demon, you basically start off at the bottom of the rung, and you can work your way up. And the more you work your way up, the more you, and I don't have a better way to put this, unlock the ability to have more complex emotions. Because we see several times that most of the emotions that they are supposed to personify, they don't. And the level of emotional complexity that most of them have is very simple, very basic, even when you go further up. The point being, um, I, I, I really, really want to know more about the nature of these creatures. There's another thing that's really nice. Well, while well, I'm talking about this, so all of the uh, angel creatures... <clears throat> all look orderly and artificial. They've got this marble skin and, and gold and all sorts of just incredibly decorative garbage all over them. And yet, in every single case, when you break them down, there's this kind of ridiculously gross, pulpy, organic mass. And eyes. There's always eyes underneath. They look like Cthulhu-esque creatures who are wearing these kind of mask things. Now, I don't think that's not that's done accidentally. We know for a fact that the team who worked on the art design of this game was... Well, I've, I've read their interviews. I've, I've, I've seen their interviews. They've said flat out they wanted to do visual storytelling with the design of both the angels and the demons. So there has to be some significance here that I'm just not catching other than the obvious, you know, they're evil underneath the fact that they're, uh, they're, they're presenting themselves as angels. So that's the obvious significance there. Now I'm going to pause this because I'm about to talk to my sister. Hello. But but for a little bit of contrast here, the demon creatures, this is the first game where we really get to see what's under their skin. They sort of have an artificial feel too, but it's a different presentation. It's hard to describe if you're not actually looking at the pictures. The, the angels of Paradiso, they all have, you know, white marble and gold and silver, and the demons all have, like, gemstones and rough steel and rock. And... So so when you break down the angels, they've got the organic, pulpy, chaosy blech underneath. And this was also true for Jubileus, by the way, and in the anime, I feel like pointing out. In the anime, you could also see underneath Jubileus' skin was the chaotic, organic, pulpy grossness. But underneath the demons, you find magma. Like, just solid fire. 
If I were to speculate, basically in a vacuum here, I would say that what's being trying to what's trying to be presented here is that the angels uh, want to appear more beautiful than they are and are disgusted by their own nature as disgusting, horrible creatures, and the demons are trying to appear better than they are because they themselves uh, find their uh, it, it, for different reasons though, like they they find their nature to be non-conductive like maybe the demons literally can't cohese properly without the armored shells keeping them together something like that uh, I, this is just pure speculation in a vacuum like I said the game didn't give me a whole lot to go off of there uh, now let's go ahead and talk about those other two characters so I mentioned Umbra Witches and Lumen Sages uh, those are basically dark and light mages let's just call it what it is they are people who are empowered augmented is actually the term I usually use um, by either demons or uh, angels. Now, uh, the Umbra Witches, the way this works in both sides, it's it's pretty much a one-to-one -one conversion. It's straight mirrored. Uh, you make a pact with a particular individual of your given section, and the way that pact works is they empower you, and they can be summoned by you, and there's some other rituals and stuff you can do to, to increase your power and, and to summon other creatures, etc. But it boils down to you are now an augmented individual, and your lifespan is extended. However, you basically have to constantly be killing members of the opposite faction in order to hold up your end of the bargain. Furthermore, if you die, you get sent to your given plane where you will be tortured forever and, I suspect, be converted into a new either demon or angel, as the case may be. Now, we have one thing that's not... I don't... This is questionably canon, but this really makes me question. Uh, I believe it was in the... Uh, what do they call it? Like the handoff mode uh, that you have where you can see what happens when a the Lumen Sage, Balder, has this happen to him as well. Because we've seen many, many times what happens when, uh, when uh, you know, when you get dragged down into hell. The red, horrible hands come out and the goopy, you know, bloody mess shows up. And all that stuff. We've seen that. We actually see basically the exact opposite in this one scene where Balder is dragged up by these heavenly, gross-looking hands into this golden light halo thing to be tortured and ripped apart and turned into an angel or whatever actually happens to him. So both sides really are analogous to each other, one-to-one, -one, like I said. In both cases, those pacts they make only work, or at least this is implied, when things are in balance. And the only way for things to be in balance is for... Well, okay, so there's these two things called the eyes, which I haven't even talked about. The right eye and the left eye. Uh, I actually don't remember which one is one off the top of my head. Hang on. I think right eye is light and left eye is dark. Yeah, that sounds right. I'm picturing Balder right now in my in my head. So with these two things, you know, the scale is balanced. If these are both absent, the scale is balanced. But if one of them is present, the scale is unbalanced. So at the end of the first game, we kind of removed one of the eyes from reality. So that kind of unbalanced reality, and that's why the events of the game are kicked off, because all of a sudden the pacts that we make uh, with these wonderful demonic creatures no longer work. It's okay, though. By the end of the game, both eyes are removed, which once again leaves us in a balanced state. The, uh, so the, the, the timeline of this uh, is as follows. The Lumen Sages and the, and the Umbra Witches were at least in a pseudo-treaty with each other. They usually wouldn't fight each other, they would just fight forces of the opposite side. Uh, right up until one of the Lumen Sages and one of the Umber Witches decided to fall in love. I decided to, you know how that goes. And uh, and had a child, that would be of course our main character, Bayonetta. 
And uh, <clears throat> oh, spoiler alert, by the way. And that led to some screwed up situations. And long story short, uh, a war broke out between the two, which the Umber Witches won. And then Balder led this massive witch hunt in which all but like two, I want to say, of the Umber Witches were wiped out. So that left one Lumen Sage and two Umber Witches in the entire planet. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if that's 100% true. I mean, there's, there's some possibilities of shadings in there. Uh, that was actually precipitated by Aesir. See, here's how this works. So, this war was started because of, of a deception that happened as a result of Par the forces of Paradiso basically lying flat out. Yeah, really? No, I don't want to update Firefox. <laughs> basically lying flat out to uh, Balder in order to push a few things. And then Balder was pulled from that point in time into the present where he perceived someone uh, who he thought murdered his wife, Rosa, awesome woman. It was great to see her in action. She was very badass. It was very cool. Um, I liked the design of her outfit a lot, too. You can kind of see where Bayonetta gets her style and, and, and uh, overall approach to combat from. Anyway, so <clears throat> Baldur's pulled back, pulled into the present as a result of, uh, during these actions, goes after the person he believes to be the one who caused all this pain, the events of Bayonetta to happen, and by the end, Aesir is defeated. Kick, giant thing. And then, uh, and then uh, he, uh, is, he takes Aesir, Baldur takes Aesir's essence into himself so that he would have to wrestle with this purely evil uh, energy. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Until, and he is ripped back into the present time where he slowly becomes what eventually would be, you know, the main villain of Bayonetta 1, starts the witch hunt, start all this stuff. And again, this is all stuff that Aesir was technically pushing. And then by the end of Bayonetta 1, he dies and takes Aesir with him, which also, if you're paying attention, 100% removes both Aesir and both eyes from the setting. Uh, once again, balancing the scales. Nice nice little tied-up bow there. <clears throat> and so, as weird as this sounds, Bayonetta 2 is technically a better... It, it technically happens before Bayonetta 1 in most ways that matter, because Bayonetta 2 directly kicks off Bayonetta 1, and it is Bayonetta 1 that effectively fully ends the threat of Aesir and, uh, and Jubileus, for that matter. Like I said, there's a little bit of time travel shenanigans, as I already tried to describe. Now, let's talk a little bit about Aesir. Like I said, Aesir was Chaos. Uh, and Chaos decided, and I like to think that there was some good in Chaos uh, when he decided this. He was like, you know what? Humans, uh, it, is, it is stated that humans didn't actually have sentience and sapience. In other words, they might have quite literally just been raw resources that the other two sides were using to, 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 re to reproduce, to procreate. Uh, Aesir gave them, you know, the gift of sentience and sapience by di di diversing himself into the world, splitting himself in two, and giving the two eyes out. One eye to the uh, Lumen Sages and one eye to the Umber Witches. And he himself split into his two halves. The problem is, unlike everything else, you know, they make a point that dark is not necessarily evil and light is not necessarily good. However, in this case, Aesir himself very clearly and definitively turned into his good half and his evil half. The good half being Loki, and the evil half being Lopter. I hope you get the pun there. But if you don't, uh, some people... Th there's a lot of theorizing about uh, where the names come from, but long story short, I mean, Loki's a little obvious in its connotations, but Lop uh, Loped, I believe, is another way to present the name Loki. L-O-P-T. So... 
Anyways, Lopter, uh, being hideously evil, decided to go about trying to encourage evil in humanity. Now, one thing that's uh, presented is the idea that the creatures of both the Realm of Light and the Realm of Darkness, you know, Inferno and Paradiso, can consume or absorb power from, you know, from powerful witches or from powerful Lumen Sages or from powerful souls or whatever. What happened is Aesir did the same thing, but much less directly over a much longer period of time. As humanity was allowed to continue its spread, the evil that humanity did, because humans were allowed to choose, basically just slowly empowered Aesir. And it is implied also kind of created a feedback loop within his own sense of, screw everything, I want to kill everything, you know, horrible, evil, terribleness, right? It is also implied that this had a similar effect on Loki, which kind of explains why, despite being a little bit of a prat, he nevertheless, at it with, with, without a moment's hesitation, drops everything to help other people more than once throughout the course of the game. Um, so they are definitively his good half and his evil half. Um, it is debated whether or not this was Aesir's original goal or not. If Aesir had genuine compassion for humanity and wanted them to be their own people, or if he always wanted to feed on their choices in order to have a more long-term empowerment than the much more short-term uh, perspective that both the Infernals and the Angels of Paradiso had. Is that everything I have on this page? I told you I don't have a lot to talk about here. Like, really, really, I don't. Um, Rodan, Rodan? I always want to say Rodan. Is uh, Satan. Uh, Lucifer, more specifically, uh, more or less literally and directly. He was actually a very high-ranked, one of the highest-ranked uh, auditos of Paradiso, and was, uh, because of the others, and being envious of him, was cast down into Inferno, and now he runs around and uses his incredible weaponsmithing uh, abilities to literally turn and craft you know, magical weapons and whatnot. Uh, he is also the super optional boss of both the first game and the second game. Now, I mention this as part of lore because he was actually in originally intended to be a function of the lore, a function of the story, and it just wasn't quite fitting, and it didn't quite fit the pace, and they were running a little low on time. So they decided to turn him into a super boss rather than an aspect, uh, making it an aspect of the lore, or I should say making it an aspect of the story, but he is still an aspect of the lore, if you follow my uh, presentation here. Uh, I, I mentioned Rosa. She was cool. Uh, I don't have much to talk about the characters. Usually I have a section where I talk about characters. I don't really have a lot to say here. Loki's a prat, but good. You know, I already mentioned that. Um, uh, Balder is, ha only really has one point of characterization, although it is a point that I have to admit, admit makes perfect sense given his character presentation in both games. His characterization being determination or will or ambition or whatever you want to call that, the drive that makes him who he is, uh, that, which makes perfect sense because of all the events of both the first and the second game, were him driving and pushing and trying to accomplish things way beyond what he normally should and would be able to do. Um, and I have, I have this one little note here that, that after the last boss fight, so the last boss was hard. When you're fighting against Aesir, oh my god, that fight, that fight was hard. <laughs> I, had, I had issues with that fight, I freely admit. Um, but it was really nice, and again, this goes to the overall presentation of Bayonetta 2, that after this ridiculously hard, serious fight, struggle for the end of the world boss fight, what immediately follows is a playable section where, again, he's flailing Daffy Duck style into the maw of, uh, you know, whatever, the demon. 
Inferno creature, and you can't lose that section. No matter you're, you can play, but no matter what you do, he still gets eaten. He still gets beaten. It was nice to have that after the oh god, oh god, barely surviving struggle for for, for survival. Uh, the last thoughts I have are about Bayonetta herself, um, and honestly, I only really have two thoughts to share about her. So forgive me. First of all. Uh, Bayonetta, it, this is I, this feels obvious, so forgive me for stating the obvious, but Bayonetta herself being the logical... I, I kind of wish we had seen more of this in visual presentation, because she very clearly is an Umbra witch. She uses demons, she uses dark powers, etc. But she herself is in very many ways the balance point of the setting. Uh, she is, in a way that's actually kind of done nicely, as opposed to a, You were the chosen one! It's never stated she's the chosen one, she just kind of happens to be it. She happens to be the, the forbidden child of a Lumen Sage and an Umbra Witch who works with, uh, both against both sides, against Inferno and against Paradiso, uh, with both sides at, and, you know, at certain points in the game. You know. She is the balance point of the entire series. The in-between. And there's this wonderful, wonderful scene uh, when you actually summon Omni, which is this literal merger of both uh, Queen Sheba, the leader of Inferno, and Jubileus, leader of uh, Paradiso. And this thing is the thing that actually delivers the final blow against Aesir, which was a nice touch. The, the forces of both light and dark combining in harmony in order to defeat Chaos. Nice touch there. Um, and of course it's presented with a wink. Literally. If you haven't played this game, you should. Um, the uh, so, so that's the first thing I have to say about her. The second thing is, I have a theory about her personality. It's my last theory about her personality. Bayonetta comes across as... Rude, I think, is the nicest way I could put that. Uh, a little flippant. I didn't like her as much as I liked Dante. Maybe that's down to the voice acting. But I felt like Dante pulled across this sort of cocky, you know, oh, yeah, I got this, kind of a portrayal better than she does. However, one thing I will say about her presentation is that I feel we do know that that's a mask. That is her pretending. We see the real Bayonetta at times. It's, it's brief glimpses in both the first game and the second. We see little glimpses into the real person there, and she is a kind and caring individual who obviously has a great attachment for, to those around her. And I mention this because I have this feeling that she has slowly become the mask over time. There is still the caring person under there, but I feel this sort of flippant, nonchalant, carefree attitude is something that she originally wore as a mask in order to hide from her pain, her trauma, the tragedy of her life, the amnesia issue she went through, you know, all the horrible things she put on this mask to avoid that, and over time just kind of became actually flippant, carefree, nonchalant, etc., with that same core of caring underneath it. I like that. I like that idea, I like that theory, and it helps add a few dimensions to the character, and it helps it, it make her a lot more tolerable in my mind. Unfortunately, that's all I got. Like I said, I don't have much to say about this one. I apologize, guys. Uh, starting next week, let me check my notes. Yep, starting next week, we're beginning JRPG month, or whatever. It, I shouldn't call it month, because my show kind of crosses months. But the point being, we're going to be discussing uh, several JRPGs in a row starting next week. So, And as ever, if you want to know what's coming up next, we have it on the website. So I hope I'll see you there. Otherwise, catch you next time, guys.